Welcome to Archetypes and Anarchy, a podcast created by me, Courtney Floyd. Episode 24, Part 1, Write Yourself into the Story. In this episode, students will be taking what they've learned about fairy tales and fiction throughout the term, and in the spirit of Shauna McGuire's indexing, literally writing themselves into a fairy tale. To do so, they will be identifying Arne Thompson tale types and archetypes that already fit with some aspect of their lives, whether it's them being the youngest child, or having blonde hair, or owning a pair of glass shoes, uh, whatever the case may be. I suspect that this will be a very rewarding way to close out both our podcast and the term, and I can't wait to hear what students have come up with. Thank you all so much for listening along with us as we went on this intro to fiction podcasting adventure, and from my class to you, we wish you all happily ever after. Hi, I'm Alex, and this is my Write Yourself Into a Fairy Tale. Once upon a time, there was an evil witch that lived in a tower located in the woods behind my house. Every summer, my friends and I would walk about a mile into the forest until we came upon the witch's tower. It was always fun to hide in the bushes and watch the witch cook up spells in her cauldron. We would always see a box that she would carry around that had a gold light that was so bright it looked like whatever was in the box was trying to shine its way out somehow. One summer, when my friends and I were getting ready to leave our home and head to college, we decided to go back to the witch's tower in the woods one last time. We got together our bags and filled it with binoculars, snacks, and a hunting knife just in case. As we began our mile-long walk, we thought of ways we can get close to the box and try to figure out what the glow was. When we finally reached the tower, we saw the witch fly out of the highest window on her broom off into the sky. Come on, let's go look inside, one of my friends said to me. Let's try to climb to the top. As we began climbing the brick wall, I remember thinking that she was going to come back any time and we would all be in trouble, but I just kept climbing, trying to, think, trying to keep up with my friends. As we started to climb closer to the window, we could see the gold light from the box shining brighter than ever. We finally hoisted ourselves through the window and came upon a small room with a big cauldron in the middle. Along the walls of the room were tons of po potions and jars full of miscellaneous items, some we had never even seen before. On top of the fireplace sat the box with the gold light shining through. By the time I realized where the box was, my friend had already gone and grabbed it and was trying to pry it open with his knife. When he finally got the box open, all that was in there was a golden apple. What's so special about this apple, my friend asked. Someone eat it, another friend said. We each took bites of the apple and waited 15 minutes to see if anything happened, but everything was still normal. We decided it was time to leave so the witch didn't come back to find us, so we began to climb down the tower and start our mile-long journey back to my house. About halfway through the walk, my friend noticed a little girl wearing a red hood crossing our path far ahead. When we, when we called out to her, she just kept walking faster until she was out of sight, so we kept heading back to my house. When we, re when we returned to my house, we noticed that it looked like a burglar had been there. The front door was wide open and all the lights were on. We stepped inside wondering what was going on. The living room and kitchen were ransacked and there were bowls of porridge everywhere. I went up to my room to see if anything was taken. To my surprise, everything seemed to be in order, except for my bed. I made my bed that morning when I woke up, and now it looked like someone had gotten in it and taken a nap. I went to the guest bedroom and noticed that the bed in there looked like it was slept in also. As I went to check my parents' room, I found a little blonde girl sleeping in it. 
I went downstairs and told my friends, and we all headed back up to wake her. As we approached the bed, she started to turn and woke up, seeing us all standing at the foot of my parents' bed. She looked more confused than we did, and, and just when we were about to ask what she was doing, we heard three loud noises coming from downstairs. Hide, yelled the blonde girl. We all went and hid in the closet while the blonde girl laid back down and pretended to be asleep. We knew we had to get out of the house somehow. We left the closet and headed downstairs to find a better hiding spot with a better view so we could see the people who were walking around my house. We hid in the corner of the living room and each of us took turns trying to figure out where the noise was coming from. When I looked around the corner, I saw three bears. One was large, one was medium, and the last was small. Let's go, yelled my friend. We and we all bolted out the back door and ran without looking back. We came upon a good place to hide and we all sat down breathing heavily trying to decipher what just happened. The next thing I remember was waking up in that hiding spot the next day. We walked back to my house to find nothing was wrong. Everything looked to be fine. My mom was in the kitchen making breakfast and my dad was in the living room watching TV. My friends figured they needed to go home and get some rest so I walked them out, all outside to their cars. What happened last night? I thought out loud to myself, confused. That was bizarre, another friend added. What was in that golden apple? So for my write yourself into a fairy tale story, um, my ideas of the uh, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears came from like a high school essay I wrote uh, for like a writing class. I remember writing, we, we had to uh, figure out, or we had to write a story about why Goldilocks was in the house in the first place or something like that. I don't really remember. But I remember having fun with that um, writing assignment, so I decided to add the um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears into this story. I also wanted to incorporate um, the Golden Apple because that was like one of the archetypes that uh, really stood out to me in this course is the Golden Apple and the Golden Bird. Um, so I decided to use that. I also used the tower in Rapunzel. Um, that's just because my group, uh, we did our podcast on Rapunzel, and that was just kind of fresh in my mind. So I decided to use that as the as the um, witch's tower in the forest. Um, the Little Red Riding Hood was just something I added Um that was I watched used to watch the movie Hoodwinked a lot and that had Little Red Riding Hood it real bleh, Little Red Riding Hood in it sorry and um, those were just good movies and it kind of like that that movie felt like something that this project was supposed to be about like kind of like Shrek where you take fairy tales and and make something new out of it so I decided to put Goldilocks in it even though she didn't really have a big part. Uh, anyways, those were my archetypes that I used. Um, the reason why I chose my backyard is because growing up, I lived with a forest in my backyard, and my friends and I would always go into the forest and um, try to uh, just try to find something cool. We never really did. We came across like across like uh, our neighbors' tree houses and stuff like that, but nothing as cool as a witch's tower. So um, I wanted to add a little excitement to my childhood. And uh, yeah, that's where I got my ideas for um, the write yourself into the story recording. Um, I hope you guys liked it. Um, 
My name is Alex Compton, and this has been my Write Yourself Into a Fairy Tale podcast. Thanks for listening. For our final episode of English 104, I wrote myself into a fairy tale called The Family of 47. Once upon a time, there lived the biggest family to ever exist, all living under the same roof, the Kennedys. Settled in a large castle in the flat farmlands of Wisconsin, there lived a family of 47 people. One grandmother, eight aunts, eight uncles, and 30 grandkids. Throughout the land, they were known as the wealthiest and most powerful family. This sparked a mass jealousy throughout the land, as people wished to become a part of their large and admirable family. However, one member of the family did not feel this way. Her name was Jill, and she was the youngest member. Jill was a teenage girl who always felt left behind, forgotten, or made fun of from the other members in her family. Even as she grew older, she still felt that she was constantly being excluded and ridiculed. But as but she could always count on her favorite uncle, Jim, to notice her absence or cheer her up when she was down. He looked at her as a, he was looked at as a leader among the family and someone that everyone was able to trust. Sweetie, said her uncle Jim, I know that it is hard to live with so many other people, but you must know that you are so special and are just as equal as anyone else in this house. From there, her relationship with her uncle only blossomed, and as the other family members saw this, they began to stop ridiculing and excluding her. But one dark and gloomy day, tragedy struck and changed everything. Jim was out running errands for the rest of the family when an intense storm began. It was reported that his car quickly spun out of control, falling straight into the river, never to be seen again. From that day forward, the Kennedy Castle had an eerie and unsettling feeling to it. While most of the family members began to move forward and start venturing into new relationships and bonds with others, Jill simply could not. After a couple months had passed, the oldest grandchild of the family, Nancy, was ready to get married. But Nancy wasn't just getting married to anyone. She was marrying the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Peter Brown. The Kennedys were overjoyed and were ready to take on a new leader to their family after the tragedy of their uncle. And because of this, Peter moved into the castle immediately after their marriage. From then on, he quickly made himself at home, using his charm and quick wit to win over the family and consequently pushing Jill farther away from her other family members. In turn, the ridiculing and excluding began to return into Jill's life. While Jill's own parents would never treat her rudely or unfairly, Peter began to lead the household ever so routinely that her parents and the rest of the family became blind to how she was being treated. One day, Peter snuck into Jill's room before sunrise while the rest of the family was asleep and yanked her out of bed saying, Get up, child. It's time for you to clean up after your family. And if you disobey me and tell anyone about this, I will kick you out of the house, as you know the rest of your family wouldn't notice. Jill couldn't disobey these orders, as she had nowhere else to live, and the rest of her family was trapped under the spell of Peter. So day after day, Jill was responsible for getting the groceries, doing the dishes, sweeping the floors, doing the laundry, and all the other tedious and never-ending chores that fall into a household of 47 people. And after this, only to have Peter take credit for all of her hard work. Soon enough, Jill was able to create a routine of this. After she would complete all of her chores and tasks, she would go out to a hidden spot in the field and watch the sunrise. And each day, at the same exact time, a stray dog would join her, 
and she would be bring him scraps of food she had found. Soon, this daily routine began to shape Jill's life, and her connection to the d dog grew stronger and stronger. She decided to name the dog Jim, after her uncle. But one morning, Jill woke up before Peter's knock on the door. She decided to get some water before she needed to complete her daily tasks. Just before she was about to walk into the kitchen, she heard Peter whispering over the phone. Yes, I have them all under my spell. They think that I clean up after them every day before I get up, just like their uncle would, he said. But now that they trust me, I can start killing them off, just like I did to Jim, and they can officially take over this house and the rest of the land. After hearing this, Jill immediately sprinted to her room so that Peter wouldn't know that she, what she had heard. From then on, she knew she couldn't take her eyes off of him. She watched his every move until she finally found his hidden stash of secrets in, a, in an abandoned barn in the, in the field near their house. While she was rummaging through all of his plans to destroy the family and take over their house in power, Peter found Jill, dead in her tracks. She tried to get past him and run home to tell the others, but Peter was too strong. Then she heard a loud bark. They both turned, only to find Jim, the dog. Quickly, he launched towards Peter, biting the side of his leg to stop him. Jill began screaming for her family members, and they quickly surrounded the barn. Nancy gasped, Peter, what is all of this? Looking around, the rest of the family quickly found out about all of Peter's secrets and plans. The grandmother, Sue, grabbed the phone and quickly called 911 to take Peter away. The rest of the Kennedy family knew that they truly owed Jill an apology, and their simple loyalty to their true family had failed. Sue looked at Jill and said, Jill, we all let ourselves get distracted by Peter's charm and wit and let you and left you without anyone to trust. We are so, so sorry. Is there anything we can do to make it up for you? Jill turned and said, Why, actually, yes, you can adopt this dog. I named him Jim. The family looked over, and just like Jill, they knew there was something special about this dog. They took him home, gave him a bath, and slowly started to feel that missing part of their family to be filled again. And from that day forward, Jill and Jim never left each other's side, and her family finally, finally saw her as an equal, and they lived happily ever after. For my reflection of the story, I mainly chose to write my story around the theme of family. I have grown up my entire life with an extremely large family. Just like the Kennedys, I have one grandmother, eight aunts, eight uncles, and 30 cousins, just on one side of the family. Also, most of my family, not including myself, lives in Wisconsin, so that is what helped to inspire the setting. Similarly, I'm also the youngest girl of the family, so I've always struggled with being too young or being excluded or forgotten when having so many other people around, just because growing up in a large family, this is ine inevitable to happen. But just like Jill, my Uncle Jim was always the most caring and pure-hearted person that never let me feel like I was being excluded or forgotten. Unfortunately, he also passed a couple years ago, so I was able to intertwine that tragedy into the story. Because my story was based around such a large family, I decided to only directly mention very few characters. This is because I wanted to keep it as simple as possible because confusion could easily come about through the many different characters all living under the same roof. Thus, for the many different archetypes, I made Jill the hero, Peter the villain, Jim the dog as the sidekick, Nancy as the distant version of the damsel in distress, 
and the mentor as Jim, her uncle, before his passing. Because this was a modern version of the story, I decided to only use a minimal element of magic within. This was used through the connection of Jim, the dog, to her uncle. I thought that this was the perfect way to combine the typical animal character in fairy tales to a feeling of hope and love to Jill during her hardest times. As for the lesson of the story that I was trying to portray, the main characteristics I wanted to spark were inclusiveness, loyalty, and family love. Having Jill save the day and the family realize that they had been fooled the entire time helped to show that loyalty to your real family always stays true. Moreover, these characteristics were largely inspired from my personal life and the strong connection I have with my family today. Finally, my whole room was packed. I was still in shock that I was about to leave my home state, let alone move out of my house. From what I know of, barely anyone has left my town. Here, after everyone graduates high school, they work at the local supermarkets, retail stores, or in construction. Nobody has been on a plane or has traveled far. Our vacations consist of trips to the local lake. I'm an only child, so I got lucky in the sense that I never had to share my food, bedroom, or gifts, giving my family a little extra money. However, since my father remarried, I've had very little extra things for myself. Instead, my stepmother became the recipient of my father's gifts. He got married my freshman year of high school, and for the past four years, I haven't been the center of attention, so I became really independent and began focusing on my studies. Coincidentally, my stepmother and I share the same name, Kate Miller. My stepmother makes it obvious to me that she wants to be the only Kate in my father's life. I graduated high school as valid Victorian three months ago. Even though there wasn't a huge education standard in my high school, I graduated with a nearly perfect SAT score and a 4.6 cumulative GPA. Nobody from my high school has ever graduated with grades like I did. Additionally, nobody from my high school ever goes to college or leaves the state. My dream was to be different than everyone else. It was to graduate and go to college and leave this state. These dreams came true when I got offered a full-ride scholarship from University of Oregon. My family, high school, and whole town was shocked by this news. Nobody I know has ever had enough money to attend college. I was so grateful for this opportunity. My father was so proud of me. He had helped me pack up my whole room and helped me prepare for my first ever plane ride. It was September 14th, and my flight to Eugene, Oregon was departing in three hours. As I was waiting outside my house for a taxi ride to the airport, my father stood at my side, almost more nervous than me. The whole neighborhood was waiting outside as well, wishing me luck. However, my stepmother was nowhere to be found. I wasn't surprised she wasn't saying goodbye. Ever since I got my acceptance to college, she hasn't said a word to me. She can't believe that I'm the one to leave our town and that I am the Kate that is making my father this proud. After I waved goodbye and hugged everyone that I could, the taxi drove me to the airport. As intimidating as the airport was, I was not scared walking inside due to all my research on air travel and how airports run. I stumbled over to the check-in counter and pulled out my flight paperwork from my bag. This paperwork was what University of Oregon had sent me. 
I gave the clerk my confirmation number and ID, only to see a confused expression appear on her face. It seems like you have already checked in, Kate Miller, said the clerk. I was very confused. How would I have checked in? I looked around the airport to find any familiar face who could help me. Suddenly, in my peripheral vision, I saw my stepmother walking through security. I screamed her name as the security guard scanned my ticket from her hands that she had stolen from me. I was crushed. I thought to myself, how am I going to get to University of Oregon? I know my family does not have nearly enough money to buy me a plane ticket to Oregon, and the university would not buy me another ticket due to this unbelievable situation. My stepmother with the same name, taking my flight. I grabbed my bags and walked over to a bench to collect my thoughts. Suddenly, I heard a voice hovering over me. Kate, why do you look so down? I look up, and it's Puddles the Duck, the University of Oregon mascot. I think to myself, what is Puddles doing here? Does he know what my evil stepmother did? Why isn't Puddles in Oregon? Before I could get a word out of my mouth, Puddles took my hand and led me outside of the airport. I'm going to take you to University of Oregon. I know what your evil stepmother did. I was here to welcome you as an extraordinary student, but you never showed up at the gate. We have to go quick. There's not much time. Suddenly, we were standing at a puddle outside of the departure's door of the airport. Close your eyes, Kate. As confused as I was, I closed my eyes. I felt puddles lift me in the air as we jumped into the puddle. Next thing I knew, we were standing next to another puddle outside of the airplane besides the luggage conveyor belt. I was speechless. What just happened? It was as if Puddles had a puddle portal. We climbed into the conveyor belt and loaded into the bottom of the airplane. Puddles told me to stay in the cargo as he climbed through the hole above us into the main cabin of the airplane. Due to my curiosity, I quietly followed him. I wanted to see what he was doing and where my evil stepmother was. As soon as I got up there, I saw that nobody had boarded the plane yet. I hid behind the flight attendant's curtain so nobody could catch me spying. Down the aisle, I could see Puddles pouring a bucket of water on my stolen seat, where my stepmother was going to sit. Puddles crawled back through the hole as he, as the passengers began to board. I could hear Puddles moving suitcases looking for me in the cargo, but he couldn't yell for me or else people would know he was down there. Suddenly, my stepmother entered the plane. I crawled to the hole that led to the cargo so I could let Puddles know I'm okay, but where I could still keep an eye on my stepmother. She put her suitcase in the overhead compartment and walked towards the window seat. As soon as she sat down, she disappeared. I was shocked. Did Puddles do that? I crawled down to where Puddles was to tell him what happened. His only response was a smile. He had planted that puddle in her seat to make her leave the airplane through one of his portals. And so this way, she couldn't get away with taking my plane ticket. I couldn't believe Puddle saved me from my stepmother and got her off of the airplane. Four hours later, we landed in Eugene, Oregon. I called my father as soon as Puddles and I got off the plane. I told him everything that happened. He was shocked. Apparently, my stepmother showed up at our house two hours after I left for the airport and told my father she was out running errands. After the phone call with my father, he filed for a divorce and filed a lawsuit 
against my stepmother for identity theft. I was still shocked that she would take my plane ticket to college because of the jealousy she had against me. I walked out of the airport with a clear mind, knowing that Puddles saved me from my evil stepmother and that I had finally made it to my college, University of Oregon. Initially, this assignment was challenging for me. I had never attempted to write a fairy tale before, let alone come up with a modernized yet magical story. After reading many fairy tales throughout the term, I had many ideas that I had to choose from to write about. I began with coming up with the different archetype characters that I wanted to incorporate in the story. After that, I wrote an outline and made sure that my fairy tale contained the basic components of most fairy tales. I ended up using a few different archetypes in my story. First, I had Puddles the Duck, who was the hero. He saved the soon-to-be college student, who was named Kate Miller, from missing her plane ride. Another archetype was the villain, the antagonist, who was the evil stepmother in my tale. Her name was also Kate Miller, and she tried to stop her stepdaughter from going to college due to her jealousy, wanting to be the only woman to make her husband proud. In my story, the essence I tried to put off about my about the evil stepmother was that she was mentally unstable. The protagonist in my tale was the soon-to-be University of Oregon student, Kate Miller. I really enjoyed writing a fairy tale of my own. It allowed me to be creative and to use all the skills that I have learned in this course. Hello, my name is Alex Holm, and this is my English 104 final. Marcus Knight walked up to the front desk, armed with a steaming cup of coffee. Courtesy of the dragon, he said, and he slid it across the counter. The clerk, Alex, jolted out of his morning trance. He brought the cup to his lips and closed its eyes, basking in its aroma and warmth. You're a savior, he said, taking a sip, and please do thank the dragon for me. Will do. By chance, could I get another room key for him, please? Marcus took the stairs to the fifth floor. He couldn't risk the elevator. If the dragon caught wind of his ruse, he'd send his henchmen to trap him. They'd instruct him from his desti destination and force him to travel 20 more floors before disembarking. How embarrassing would that be? He pushed the door open. It took a moment for him to register, and then they were on top of him, the little dragonlings, behind him with the snaps of the their cameras. Marcus Knight once said, What is your current relationship with Brittany Shields? How do you feel about the leaks? You can't be here. He heard another one say, Doesn't the dragon have a restraining order on you? With a growl, Marcus shoved through the first wave of them. They parted like grain as he moved through them, only to cr cluster at his back. The second wave refused to yield as easily. They stood their ground, pressing into each other and the walls, pushing them back against him as hard as they could while still taking pictures. They left him no choice. Out of the way, Marcus said, as he picked up a dragonling by the shoulders. The paparazzo let out a cry, kicking his legs and threatening to call the police. His fellows didn't bother coming to his aid. Instead, they repositioned themselves, filling the gap he left behind. All the dragonlings stooped, leaned, and jumped in order 
to find the best camera angle to capture the impending violence. Marcus lifted the dragonling above his head and tossed him forward into the crowd. There was no space to accommodate him, and with a crack and a thud, he landed on a clump of reporters. In the ensuing panic, the crowd relaxed, and Marcus barged through. He fought his way to room 520, slid the card into the electric lock, and slipped in. Slamming the door behind him, there was a scream from the outside. He shut the door on the fingers of a desperate reporter. He pushed until she retracted her hand and the door finally closed. With that incident, they'd bother him no longer, not even, not even if they could. Marcus Knight, what are you doing here? The dragon leapt from his chair, sending it spinning. Every part of him was shaking, down to his goatee. He grabbed a baseball bat from beneath the desk. I'm warning you, don't take a step closer. Marcus, is that you? Her voice was coming from a laptop on the desk, and Marcus ignored the dragon and stepped into the be bedroom for a better angle. There, on Skype, was a princess of pop her herself, Brittany Shields, her face a mock with worry. Don't worry, Brittany, he said, puffing his chest out. I'm here to rescue you. To his disappointment, she didn't seem comforted at all by this remark. Rescue? There's nothing to rescue here. The dragon shook his bat and scooted backwards, knocking over his chair and clamoring on top of the radiator. Get out already. You're not supposed to be here. Marcus stepped forward past the first bed, digging through his pockets. He stopped at the foot, foot of the second bed next to the desk. Will you cede these photos willingly? It's in my rights to have them, and you're not going to get away with bullying me like this. Now, if you'll excuse us, we're in the middle of negotiations, so maybe you'll end up getting your wish. The dragon motioned to the Skype screen, and Brittany pouted. How characteristic it was for him to cite rights while invader invading others' privacy. Marcus extracted the mega mag magnet from his pocket and dangled it. It took the dragon a second to recognize it. No, stop. But Marcus had already applied the magnet to the underside of the laptop. The dragon lurched over as the screen blipped into black. He collapsed onto the floor, grasping for the air in front of him. The photos, all, all of them, were gone. There was no fire left for him to spit. Marcus exited the room and was greeted once more by, by blinding fairy snapshots. Marcus Knight, someone said, I'll need you to come with me. Certainly, he replied, and bowed, awaiting his coronation. But no sword met his shoulder, only a beefy hand with the weight of reprimand. He looked, he looked up. A police officer was frowning at him. You're under arrest, he said, for trespassing public violence and violating your restraining other, among other charges. Please follow me. That was the end of my final project. Now I'll begin my reflection. One of the things I tried to do in my podcast was create a, a false expectation of what is going to happen. The main character, Marcus Knight, even in his last name, is Knight, and um, Knights are commonly known as the heroes. But in this case, Mar Marcus had a, a warped sense of reality, believing that he was the hero, while in reality he was the villain. Another thing I tried to implement was the 
um, Dragonites instead of the paparazzi and reporters. This just added to the uh, false sense of reality that Marcus has viewing everyone who it is helping the dragon as uh, someone bad and um, the way he aggressively moves towards the hotel room door tossing each and every one of them it's just kind of symbolic of how deranged he is and how wrong he really is even though he probably thinks he's doing the right thing which he does you can see this in the closing paragraph when he leaves the hotel room and expects a coordination which is for kings but he only gets uh handcuffed because he broke the law trying to rescue these pictures of Brittany, but no one had asked him to go and save the pictures. He did this on the own because he felt like he needed to, but in reality, no one asked him or really wanted him to be there. This is the end of my reflection. Um, thank you for a great term. Sorry, I've had the hiccups. I've been battling them for the past few days, and I hope it didn't affect my podcast in any substantial way um have a great summer thank you in the small town of san pablo of 19 year old malachi gazoo a bright young teenager who has lived in san pablo his entire life and has never once left and has never once left the premise of the town's walls his entire life he was told that there was nothing beyond those walls that he could that he couldn't find in san pablo children's stories were told to him as a young boy about the evil that lurks in the other world the terrible creatures and people that would try to kill him these children books have, have images as well graphic gruesome images that showed little children who disobeyed and snuck past the wall and once they did they were eaten and torn limb by limb by these large scary beings Malachi, of course, was frightened by this as a child all the way into his late teens, but he never stopped being curious about what he would find out there. Malachi felt special. He knew he was meant for more in this world. He knew there to be more beyond the walls. The young boy went against everything everyone ever, ever told him for his entire life, and he snuck out of the walls for wh when nobody was looking, and he was finally free. Malachi now standing outside the walls, looking in awe as he is looking at a place he has never seen before. The sun is brighter, the sky is bluer, and he is surrounded by tall trees with no idea where to go. Kazoo walked straight. He kept walking, and he could finally see where the trees ended, and when he got to that point, he couldn't believe what he saw. He was in a giant city filled with tall buildings, fast-moving cars, mountains on the horizon. The, the world he knew was out there, but no one ever told him about. He couldn't get past that very question, though. Why did everyone in his entire life lie to him about what was outside of San Pablo? They told him that the outside world was full of monsters and demons that would tear you apart, but this world, but this new world was far from it. It was, it was beautiful. Malachi, now in the streets of this bizarre new city, he, could, he doesn't know what to do. He has never seen such a populated area, whereas San Paulo was very small. As Malachi is walking, he bumps into this man who, was, who very angrily tells him to watch where you're walking. Malachi apologizes, claiming he has lost. The man then offers to show him around the city, as he can tell the young boy needs help. The name is Ethan Weiss, the stranger said. What is, what is this, your first time in the city, kid? Malachi, of course, can't reveal the existence of his, of his locked-off society of San Paulo, but does tell him that he has lost, and he would love a tour around the city. The two walk around the city, Ethan showing Malachi things he has never seen before. Malachi, though having not seen anything like it his entire life, is dazed and confused, T taking in the new sights and breathing in this new air that seems to be different than the air he, he breathed at home. The two walked past a sporting event of some kind. Malachi had no clue what it was. What, you've never seen a baseball game before? Said Ethan, as you can tell by the look of his face. 
we didn't have this game where I'm from, responded Malachi. The two go into the baseball game, and Malachi had the best time of his life. He had never had more fun. Malachi yells to the sky, I knew there was more than my old provincial life. Is Beauty and the Beast, said Ethan. But Malachi had no idea what Beauty and the Beast is. But it did remind him of the beasts that were told in the fairy tales of when he was a kid, the beasts that would eat him if he entered the world beyond the walls. So he asked Ethan about them. Are there any creatures around here by chance, like monsters that eat people? Ethan froze and was taken by this question Malachi just asked him. Ethan, after a second of frozenness, tells him, no, where would you get such an idea? Malachi tells him it is nothing, just some old tale he was told as a child. Ethan quickly changes the subject and asks if Malachi is, if he is hungry, the two go to a local pizza joint where Malachi gets to enjoy the cheesy taste of pizza for the first time. Ethan asks Malachi where he is from, picking up on many signs that he is from nowhere near this area, especially being that he has never had pizza before. Malachi finally breaks down and tells him this, Ethan the secret that he is hiding about where he is from because he is nervous and doesn't know what to do without Ethan's help. He tells him that he is from a small village named San Pablo. Ethan then drops his drink on the ground as it shatters against the floor. He quickly grabs Malachi and pulls him to the bathroom. What did you just say? asks Ethan. San Pablo. It is a small farm town surrounded by a large wall and people that told me I can never leave because of what I would find outside the premise. Do you know about my homeland? asks Malachi. Why did they tell me I can't leave? What are they hiding from me? Ethan begins to step out away from Malachi slowly with a very concerned look on his face. Malachi asks what's, what is wrong, but Ethan now is on the phone whispering to someone on the other line. What is it, yells Malachi, but it's too late. The pizza owner breaks down the bathroom door because of the yelling, and Malachi and Ethan are looked upon the entire restaurant. Ethan now off the phone is telling the crowd to stay away from the teenager. Malachi, completely clueless of the situation, runs away, but with no idea where to go. He looks behind, but no one is following him, and as he turns back around, continuing to run, he's met by a large van with tens of men running out with large weapons in a net system that captures the confused teen and throws him into the van with a black bag over his head. Malachi, after what seemed like hours long of a car ride, finds himself in chains in a large cage. His mask is taken off, and, and he is met by no one other than Ethan Weiss. I, now, I know you have hundreds of questions, and we will answer them in time, said Ethan, but right now we need to ask you one thing. How did you escape San Pablo? Malachi asked how they know he escaped San Pablo and how they actually know about his locked-off society and why I am chained up. I'm, I mean you no harm whatsoever. You really have no idea, said Weiss. What did they do to you? What did who do to me, asked Malachi. Your people, quickly responded Ethan. Malachi, still having no idea what is going on, his head spinning in circles, it turns... Out, everyone in San Pablo was right about the monsters in the real world. The monsters were standing right in front of him. They take you by force, lock you up, and Malachi now scared for his life because he knows from the stories he was told as a child that he will brutally be killed by the creatures. What Malachi and Ethan don't know is they were both equally scared of each other. Since you aren't telling us and you are clearly in shock, we are going to leave you here locked up and think about what you, what you can tell us about your homeland of San Pablo and how you know about it, said Ethan. How I know about it? I want to know how you know about it, yelled back Malachi. Ethan leaves the room, as, and as Malachi is looking around, he sees a picture of what looks like, a, like the city he was in all day with Ethan. But what was bizarre about the picture was above the, above the city, past the forest, stood this large bubble-like fortress. That bubble is right where San Pablo is, Malachi says to himself. Ethan, 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 yells Malachi. Ethan runs into the room, asking if he is ready to talk. Tell me what that bubble is in the picture, asks Malachi. Why, that's San Pablo, Malachi. That's where we send monsters like you. You know the same monsters you told me you were told about when you were a kid, said Ethan. I work for a secret government that captures evil creatures like yourself and we bring them to that secret land of San Pablo that is hidden from the rest of the world. The world doesn't know about monsters yet, even if they lurk around us every day, just like I ran into you, explained Ethan. Malachi is speechless. How can this be possible, he asks. I was told you were the monsters. That must have been something they told you to keep, keep you from, wanting to, from not wanting to leave, but clearly it wasn't enough, said secret agent Weiss. Malachi explains that he is not a monster and that everyone from San Pablo is human. Ethan explains that Malachi isn't the first of his kind. He isn't the first teen that escapes San Pablo looking for a world bigger than his or her once provincial life. 
Yeah, that's right, said Ethan. They said the exact same line as you. I knew it was from Beauty and the Beast. And you guys totally ripped off that movie. You asshole. How dare you? Sorry, I'm getting off topic. Would you like to see your other monster friends? Asked Ethan. What do you mean, asked Malachi? People from San Paulo are here? Why do you keep them here? Because they are too dangerous to society. We can't risk them roaming the streets. And, and when we have brought these kids back to San Pablo in the past, we have lost many men to outbreaks in the wall transfer. For some reason, your monster's brothers and sisters want you to leave those walls for a reason. They don't want you to come back. I am not a monster, yells Malachi as he is thrown, as he is thrown in a jail cell, locked up with hundreds of other teens at the exact same age. Malachi yells to the sky, I am not a monster. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. Ethan shuts the door. And now as in a quiet room of hundreds of prisoners, a voice from the dark says, We have been waiting for you, Master. Your arrival is the final piece to our world domination plot. Malachi sits quietly and says, Brothers and sisters, it is time we take this world for our own, to make our mothers and fathers of San Pablo proud. We must break them out of San Pablo and take this world for our own. I had a whole bunch of different ideas of what I wanted to do about this podcast going into this fairy tale. And I, 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 I finally came with the like final, final idea of I wanted to talk about my life. I connected this all back to my own. You know, obviously, I'm not a monster. And, you know, I, 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 Ethan Weiss is a character in the story. I just wanted to put myself into it and make it as, as modern as and relative to my own life. But I'm, the kind, I'm pretty much the character of Malachi Kazoo. That's why I kind of put myself in. And I didn't want to play my own self that time. I felt that was kind of weird. But I, San Pablo is actually Spanish for my hometown, uh, St. Paul. And I'm from a very small farm town. Um, in Oregon, about an hour and a half away from Eugene, and it's it's very similar to how I describe San Pablo. It's just it's small, it's it's isolated, it's 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 surrounded by fields, it's rural. There's not a lot of people there, and um, his journey um, beyond the walls into this new world is is me going to Eugene. That's what I kind of like. That's what I kind of did. I if and, you know people always in St. Paul, people stay, people never leave. They kind of you kind of stuck there. And people can never find themselves going, you know, becoming more than what they are in St. Paul. And I always knew I was more than that. I always did. And, you know, that's why I'm going to college. That's why I'm living in the, you know, that's why I'm living here now in this much larger city than St. Paul. We, we had 400 people in our town. There's 400 people in St. Paul. So any step would have been larger, you know, especially going to Eugene. And, yeah, so that's what I kind of, it's just kind of based off my life. And, um, and then I kind of, I just, I put my own fun little spin on it. And I was coming up with things that, you know, as I went along and the first resolution was him breaking out of San Pablo and, you know, getting into this new world. And, um, and then his like tr- rough transition, trying to find people. And, and that was kind of me going into college. I had a rough transition in the beginning and, and him finding Ethan Weiss was kind of like me finding my friends and settling down and, you know, finally getting that transition and into this new part of my life, this newest chapter. And, you know, that was him finding Ethan Weiss and, um, Ethan Weiss helping him into this new world, kind of showing him what it's all about. Cause you know, Malachi had no idea what this whole new world was about. And it's kind of the same for me. Obviously I've, I've been to Eugene prior to going here, but like, unlike him being, being locked in his town the entire time. But yeah, that's what I, that's what I did for that. And I did a whole bunch of other t- motifs and it's, I kind of, um, the Truman show was an idea of how, so Truman, Jim Carrey is in this world and it's a giant bubble. That's where I got the bubble idea from. And he's he's he has no idea his entire life. It's, you know, he's much older. He's like into his 30s. And he finds out he's on a television sh- television show and he's been he was adopted by this TV network and everyone in his life, even his own wife and his parents and his his dad. And it's like they've been they're all actors on this TV show. And he's the only one that doesn't know that he's part of it. And the whole world, the whole world watches it. The whole world is aware of this TV show. But him, um, he thinks he's just living a regular life, but he's not. And that's where I kind of got that idea from. And also I, I threw in the whole, the, like the beauty and the beast thing. Cause it's like, I don't know, like Belle, she knew there was more to her life than what she has there. And, you know, and she finds it with the beast and, and 
that's where I, I threw in the exact quote and I just kind of, I thought that was funny to just to throw in an, 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 like an exact like fairy tale like quote and to symbolize that. And, you know, and I, and I brought in the character and I, it's kind of, it's like, I wanted to leave it obviously like a lot of fairy tales and happy after after happy, happy ever after, but I wanted, I didn't want to do that. I like, I don't know. I, I want, I want the audience to just, leave, just like stay on their toes. I want them to, I want them to be wanting more. And that's what I did with the ending. Obviously the whole time you don't know what's going to be happening with like the, you don't know who's who really like, you're like, Oh, is this Ethan Weiss character going to end up being bad? What, why were they lying to him in San Pablo? Why wouldn't they let him leave? Why was it so easy for him to leave? And then everything, everything's kind of solved in the end. Um, but you know, when, when he goes into that room, you're going to be like, Oh, what's going to happen now? Like, is he going to like, is he going to break out? Is he actually human? Like you don't really know. And then in the very end, he reveals that like, it, this was an entire plot and everyone was just waiting for him to be captured. And, and like, it, it was just, it was, now it's like the, now the monsters are finally going to take over the world and it was like it was, the whole thing was just a whole setup and Ethan Weiss had no idea. And, and that's, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen. It's just, you know, it's kind of just them, you know, you hear the voice in the dark and it's saying, oh, master, you're here. It's like Ethan Weiss is like uh, Malachi Gazoo was part of the whole thing. And and that's what, and, you know, that's the audience. It's kind of like it's kind of a open ending in a way. And now it's, you know, leaves the audience kind of finalizing the story in their own way coming up with their own idea of how it's going to end and that's what i like the most about stories definitely it you know it, it wants you it wants you listening to more it wants you reading more um and that's what i that's what i did and that's why that also it ties back into my own life because it's i'm finishing up my freshman year and there's still more to my story there's still more to this new chapter in my life it's you know i'll be here for three more years and then that's and then it goes into my actual life so that's why i kind of want to leave the story unfinished because of because my actual story isn't done yet Archetypes and Anarchy is produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and researched and written by my spring 2018 Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon. Our theme music is Music Box by The Underscore Orchestra, and our closing music is Wolf, It's Really Rather Rad by High Arches, both of which are available under a Creative Commons license at the Free Music Archive. The sound of the wolf that lives in the woods That comes to my back door from time to time Shake the hand of the sun that burns above Reaches down over everyone Got your jekyll and heart, your monster inside Pouring water over your fire Lying curl us a soul that I need to go Back into the woods, I'm told Not a single living thing needs to be left out You can find in the garden what's missing in yourself There's a spider web that connects heads Connected by the number nine can you think in visions and breathe in rhythms? Dream an ocean over your lips. It brings a deeper meaning, a powerful feeling. Brings us the myths we're told. And it's only clean water that supports the things that we're trying to grow. Not a single living cell needs to be left out. 
find in the garden what's missing in yourself? Have you seen the way the speaker makes a pattern in the sand? When the frequency is just right, oh man, it's really rather rare. 